Well, thank you for inviting me. This is the um, first opportunity, actually, I've had to come and talk about the book since it was published last spring. I think I'm probably uh, moving uh, towards the end of that uh, comforting phase where you can imagine the book as you would wish it to be, to uh, the reviews coming out and people <laughs> telling you um, how it actually is. Um, so maybe that's the beginning of that journey. But um, I'm going to talk uh, in four parts. Um, uh, the first part, I'm going to say something about the relationship between empire and globalization. And then, uh, in the middle of the talk, I'm going to try and ground that by relating it um, to uh, migration um, habits and behaviour within a British world in the long 19th century. I'll explain what I mean by the, the British world uh, in a few minutes. And I'm also going to talk about, uh, in the third part, cultures of consumption within that British world. Then at the end I'm going to try and draw that together by um, saying something about how an understanding of globalisation in the past, insofar as it was shaped and structured by empire, might say something or shed some light upon how globalisation is being experienced today. So, I mean, that's the, the format, that's what's coming. So by the 1990s, the study of contemporary globalisation had captured the imagination of many social scientists. Talk of a global society, global economy, global warming, the global war against terror, and even a new global order was commonplace. And globalisation conveyed a sense of living in an age of transformation, or, if you like, unprecedented change, one in which little could be taken for granted, and no one quite knew what the future might bring. And as a concept, it spoke not only to the physical compression of the world, but also to the realm of perception and the imagination, what Roland Robinson has termed, uh, termed an intensification in the consciousness of the world as a whole. In academia, as we know, few disciplines have been left untouched by globalisation's claims, or indeed remained immune to its conceptual allure. And the view that globalisation deserves a prominent place on the agenda of historical research didn't take a long time to establish itself. Indeed, I think historians came fairly hard on the heels of social scientists to argue that many of globalisation's key features had actually been long a fact of life. To be sure, some of them did question the concept's novelty or felt frustrated by its lack of specificity. Uh, all were uncomfortable with its Eurocentricity. But I think that that sort of scepticism has largely been offset by a strong sense that globalisation might offer fruitful ways of conceptualising historical as well as contemporary change. Perhaps not surprisingly, when delineating earlier eras of globalisation, the long 19th century, with its striking growth and specialisation of world trade, looms pretty large. And this, of course, was also a century in which Britain pursued a distinctively and expansively imperial vision of its place in the world, which joined together a complex formal territorial empire with an equally complex yet informal system of influence and interest and interference. And this brings us to the relationship between empire and globalisation, which is arguably the most widely and energetically explored aspect of globalisation's past. Now on the face of it, the division of the world 
into rival empires and the processes of closer international integration would appear to be inherently in conflict. And to the extent that rivalry between empires and violence and oppression within them have pitted peoples and cultures against each other, then that certainly rings true. More than that, I think we're accustomed to perceive most political phenomena, including globalisation itself, through the framework of the nation-state. And from such a perspective, closer integration is largely a product of the interplay of different international policies, so that a society's freedom to make its way in the global marketplace is in turn contingent upon a prior ability to gain and exert its independence. However, as soon as one looks more closely at some of the key drivers for contemporary globalisation, whether it be international flows of people, goods and capital, or indeed spreads of ideas and theories about individual rights and private property and bureaucratic efficiency, it's clear that in earlier periods these flows didn't only occur within, but were also significantly shaped by the matrices of empire. And empires from that point of view could be powerful sponsors of globalisation. And if you follow that logic, then much of the writing about the history of globalisation has tended to devote itself to periodising and trying to pin down what might be seen as distinguishing features of earlier episodes of global imperialisms. But some scholars, as many of you will know, have also wanted to sound a strong note of caution here. In particular, attention is drawn to the limitations of globalisation during the age of European empires. The fact that their penetration of and control over African and Asian economies was far from complete. The marked unevenness of globalisation, which was a process which advanced more rapidly in some colonies than others. And also a questioning of the assumption that globalisation was either linear or inevitable when the evidence of the past suggests that it could recede as well as advance. So when engaging with debates about contemporary globalisation, historians have been wary of some of its proponents' more ambitious claims. And I think that's especially true of globalisation's supposed homogenising tendencies and the notion that cultural fusion was a necessary consequence of economic integration. And that's a point that I'll come back to later on. So the book that I've just published, um, co-authored with Gary McGee, pitches into these debates about history and globalisation. And it seeks to blend approaches from the social sciences, economics and history. And our aim was to explore the social networks, business connections, migrational habits and shared material culture that bound together British communities at home and British communities overseas in the long 19th century. And we see this so-called British world, as some historians have called it, as a discrete historical phenomenon <coughs> that profoundly altered the global landscape in this period and also forged a cultural economy, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, with its own internal logic and dynamic. So a central feature of our book is this relationship between cultural identity and economic behaviour. And it's a relationship which we think <coughs> has been largely um, unexplored in the new imperial history and indeed in economic history. And to give just one example here, while there's certainly discussion in the economics literature of the role of co-ethnic networks and interpersonal connections in bringing people together, building trust, facilitating the development of trade and so forth, 
in pre-modern and early modern contexts, modern economies, by contrast, are typically held not to need such devices. In personal market institutions and profit maximisation provide a more efficient solution. But as we argue, there's clear evidence that non-economic considerations such as cultural identity not only didn't disappear, but in fact retain their significance. And networks, far from simply being a relic of pre-modern contexts, or indeed a uniquely contemporary grassroots response to the pressures of globalisation, were at the heart of the rapidly developing transnationalism of the long 19th century. Of course, it isn't just economics that can be accused of narrowing its focus. While some economists have eschewed the cultural, many in the humanities in recent years, for their part, have also increasingly turned away from the economic. And imperial historiographies seem to have split into new imperial histories that focus primarily on the social and cultural, and so-called older histories which give more attention to the political, military and economic. But we argue to conceive of the empire as an interconnected space with metropolitan and colonial places linked to each other by a series of networks or webs has become the fashion. We argue that that calls for an approach that's capable of situating economy and culture in the same analytic framework. Suffice to say, that's easier said than done. And we think that it particularly requires a more meaningful communication between different strands of history and between history and the social sciences than is currently the norm. So we use the term cultural economy to highlight how cultural factors can influence economic behaviour. And we begin with the idea that all economies function in cultural contexts. Of course, the relationship between culture and economics is complex, and culture is certainly not simply the creature of the economy, even if cultural practices can sometimes be subordinated to economic ends and demands. But we do believe that weight of evidence supports our view that cultural features can and do influence aspects of economic behaviour and organisation. Now recent studies pay attention to the variety of cultural meanings that have been given to economic activity and they do that in relation to consumption and production and the creation and diffusion of knowledge. In each case cultural influences are said to have been mediated not only through specific measures to encourage or indeed inhibit trade, but indirectly, and this is a critical point, through their impact on the nature and intensity of information flows. <coughs> and such a view is consistent with our own. By creating a larger supply of and demand for information, we argue that migration transformed existing and, and shaped new forms of consumption, and that it also facilitated the adoption of new technological and organisational innovations. And throughout the British world, the consequences were profound and enduring. As Alan Lester expresses it in his review of our book, cultural reproduction and economic integration could be mutually reinforcing. Central to the creation of this British world was the emergence of a group of settler societies. These hitherto likely populated regions occupied a privileged position in the first global economy wrought by British free traders. With an abundance of fertile land, yet lacking in labour and capital, they quickly attracted the interest of British investors and emigrants. By enticing large numbers of immigrants and large volumes of capital to their shores and by constructing a modern infrastructure, and also by exporting a narrow range of staples, they were able to achieve rapid rates of economic growth and offer their settler populations levels of per capita income that for the time were impressively high. 
We are not, of course, the first historians to have been drawn to the global development of settler capitalism and Dominion export economies. Donald Denoon's pioneering comparative study of six settler societies, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, <coughs> Argentina, Chile and Uruguay, while allowing for their differing responses to world economic conditions, nonetheless firmly placed them in their own distinct category of development. And more recently, there is Jamie Belicher's magnificent new book on the rise of the Anglo world, Replenishing the Earth. If our approach differs from Dunoon, it's partly because our geographical frame of reference is wider. Like Belich, we pay more attention to the United States, which we understand to have been connected to this British world, albeit ambiguously so. Conversely, while we believe Latin America to be a useful comparator, we are less confident than Belich that it can be so firmly situated within the context of a British world. And of particular relevance here is Belich's notion of an Anglo-Settlerist discourse, or as he calls it, secular utopianism. This is, in Belich's view, a body of shared ideas which propelled frontier expansion across Latin America, Britain's dominions and the United States. Now this seems to us to ignore some very important differences between the nature of migration to Latin America and that to the British world. Take, for instance, the Italians who moved to Argentina. They did so as temporary or seasonal migrants, leasing land on short-term contracts or selling their labour during harvest, while accumulating considerable amounts of capital to send home. Compare this with the migrants who settled on the Canadian prairies from Britain, eastern Canada and the United States, who made land ownership their main goal, and whose preference, therefore, was for self-employment rather than selling their own labour. Mindful of those sorts of differences in political tradition and in the origins of immigrant populations, we go on to show how many of the British migrants who did go to Latin America, such as the Cornish who went to Brazil and Cuba and Mexico and Chile, or the rural British communities of um, British settlers in Argentina, or even the Welsh in Patagonia, all of these lack the co-ethnic networks that supported their counterparts in other parts of the British world in order to make their move a permanent success. So it should by, by now be clear that um, our emphasis on migration isn't an accident. Integral to any proper analysis of globalisation is a full understanding of the role played by the mass movement of people. The migrant as everyman may be the defining feature of our own times, and certainly the literature, I think, on contemporary globalisation sees it as being mediated by migration. Waves of emigration have helped to integrate large portions of today's world, and engendered new and uh, more transnational uh, ways of thinking. But migration, of course, is as old as humanity itself. Uh, and it was during the long 19th century, which is the most, I think, intensive period of migration in human history, that 100 million people moved around the world, with perhaps as many as one in every 10 people affected by that experience. And a quarter of those 100 million migrants were European, and the United Kingdom was the largest source of migrants within Europe, exporting on average about 2 million people per decade from the 1870s to the 1920s. And as prolific migrants, the British people settled across Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada and the United States, as we know. The consequences of that outflow of population were profound. On the one hand, emigration was a force for global economic growth. It integrated labour, commodity and capital markets to an extent 
never previously seen. But on the other hand, that industry of white settlement, for that, as Belich, I think, rightly argues, is what it was, led to the widespread dispossession and delocalisation of indigenous peoples, the effects of which were felt um, uh, strongly at the time and still resonate today. So we argue that this migration made transnationalism, um, our definition of which is living in and identifying with more than one country or place at once, a normal way of life for many British people in the half century before the First World War. In the eyes of many, those who'd migrated to Britain's settler colonies or whose forefathers had migrated there remained British, or at least partly so. And being British had material implications. Not only did it shape tastes and consumer preferences, it impacted on the very nature and orientation of economic activity and behaviour. In seeking to show how these migrants were key players in Britain's exploitation of global resources, we open up a much neglected uh, dimension of their experience. And this is um, remittances, the one-off sort of regular payments that migrants made uh, in order to support friends and family back home. Studies of contemporary remittance activity highlight the positive role that those monetary transfers can play in alleviating poverty in recipient countries. But they also sometimes criticise remitters, like the Chinese in Australia, for example, for not making a life in their adopted country and for sending a lot of their money home. Now, in comparison, remittances have received a lot less attention from historians. And in fact, in the case of the British, until recently, it wasn't even clear what type of historical source material you might use to reconstruct them. The extensive remittance culture of the long 19th century, as we call it, was unleashed by successive rounds of migration, and it put into play streams of capital that supplied vital support to British families that were literally stretched across the globe. We discovered some data in the post office archives, which I think offers unparalleled insights into the scale of those remittance flows and the different purposes to which they were put. It was in the later 19th century that the volume of remittances grew rapidly, and it did so partly as a product of the growing wealth and numbers of emigrants, but also because of the ease with which they could now transfer those funds internationally via the money and postal order systems operated by the British and colonial post officers. And from their inception in the early 1870s, those systems proved very popular, because they allowed for small amounts of cash to be sent through the mail cheaply and quite easily. So what persuaded ordinary men and women to put their trust in those postal and remittance services? Well, the Victorian Post Office was one of the very few government services which really did reach into all parts of the country and touch all classes. Its ethos was one of efficiency and reliability, and discipline from the centre wasn't only exercised on the provinces in Britain, colonial post officers were also subject to the strictures of the British Postmaster General, and staff were often sent out from Britain to run colonial post officers. Anthony Trollope, for example, had an acute appreciation of the value attached to the overseas mail by colonists, and of the excitement that could be occasioned by its arrival. During his frequent trips abroad, he actually made a point when he arrived in a new city of going to examine the post office. And as Trollope observed, post office buildings in the colonies were very often the grandest public edifices in town, and they were a sign, I think, in many ways of how symbolic forms of authority could reinforce the confidence 
the colonists would place in money and postal orders. <coughs> Come to brass tax from the 1870s to 1914, somewhere between 200 and 270 million pounds was remitted to and from the United Kingdom, and the net gain to Britain was somewhere in the order of 130 million to 200 million. I can explain why you have the disparity of those figures later, in your uh, later if you like. But to put things in context, those sums of money would equate to something like 5% of Britain's total exports in 1913. Probably you get a better feel, I think, um, for what they meant if you actually localise it and look at a migrant community. Now, one significant source of remittances came from the Cornish mining diaspora. From the 1880s, the Cornish, as you'll know, provided a highly mobile workforce, and on the waters around in South Africa, for example, they formed about a quarter of the total white mi uh, uh, mining workforce, so about 10,000 miners in all. And many of those miners travelled alone, and the families that they left behind in Cornwall anxiously awaited the arrival of a regular remittance. When the South African mail did arrive, people would flock into the towns from surrounding villages to collect their money, and business in the local shops would boom. Conversely, when the home pay, as it was called, did not arrive, the county's board of guardians were left to pick up the pieces, albeit they were actually often helped by the charitable work of several Cornish associations on the Rand. Uh, and that constant flow of remittances from South Africa is recognised by um, uh, local and regional historians of Cornwall to have provided a lifeline for the Cornish economy up to the First World War. Separated by, um, from their family by great distances, many migrants clearly did feel responsible for the wives, children and dependent relatives that they'd left behind. And nor was the tenacity of those old world social ties confined to the British imperial world. Transatlantic remittance flows show how a sizeable proportion of British migrants in the United States likewise displayed an ongoing psychological commitment to their homeland. Whether migrants left for the settler colonies or for America, their departure wasn't so much a case of cut and run as of run, remit and perhaps later return. Europeans of course were not the only remittance. 14 million or so Indian and Chinese contract labourers also moved around the empire and other parts of Asia in search of employment and they were likewise indispensable to the workings of global capitalism and they also strove to save money and to send it home to their families during indenture or to take back home with them after indenture had ended. And they're a salutary reminder, I think, that not all the processes of globalisation were rooted in Europe. Much less has been written about the remitting um, behaviour of those non-European migrants, and I think that raises the possibility of um, further and fruitful comparative study of remittance activity across different ethnic diasporas. What we do know is that in those regions where European and non-European migratory streams did mix, then power, uh, the power of imperial networks to discriminate against coloured peoples and to exclude them from the privileges and responsibility of skilled labour was striking. British migrants, by contrast, enjoyed advantageous access to these networks and they were um, adept at exploiting them for their own gain. give you an example, the controversy over Chinese indentured labour in early 20th century South Africa, where skilled workers from Britain and Australia who migrated to the Transvaal invoked a doctrine of what's been called white labourism or racial socialism 
to challenge the presence of ethnic outsiders in the workplace. Understood in that way, you might almost liken remittances to a sort of imperial-wide form of social insurance. They're part of a bigger push to shore up a separate racial status, including job security and better pay and welfare for white British subjects. So what I've been arguing for is that much can be learnt about the economy of this British world by conceiving it as a species of global networking. Networks that enable us to analyse with greater precision long-distance connections over extended periods of time. And such networks were able to connect private and official and provincial interests in Britain with their overseas contacts and communities. It's through these networks that ideas and information are exchanged, trust is negotiated, goods are traded and people travel. More specifically, in relation to migrant networks, what I think we can see is a multitude of recurring personal interactions which over the course of the second half of the 19th century bring ever wider groups of people together. In other words, the networks forged by migrants might be likened to the vectors through which social capital moves, accumulates and ultimately promotes trade and economic development. But of course, great care is needed here. One shouldn't assume that this process of network-sponsored economic growth was rosy or unidirectional. The notion that networks always promote economic activity simply because they did so for a while during the latter part of the 19th century is an illusion, as is the view um, that growth sponsored by networks is culturally or racially neutral. The harsh reality is that when they were forcefully challenged in the interwar period, the relative inclusiveness of 19th century British world networks proved remarkably brittle. And this was because, I think, for many of those involved, Enthusiasm for closer integration was predicated on that process's ability to continue generating prosperity, and therein lay one of the weaknesses of the distinctively imperial vision of globalisation pursued by the British. Success encouraged greater degrees of openness and further expansion, but failure saw the door slam shut and retreat, and none of that should surprise us, because networks, after all, are specifically created to be exclusive and to promote the interests of insiders, if need be at the expense of others. When economic opportunities falter, the natural instinct of networks is to turn inwards. And this in turn, I think, explains why the British world networks that had formerly been at the forefront of globalisation could, when circumstances changed and world economic conditions were no longer so benign, become instruments of its rollback. Moreover, the common cultural identity underlying these networks now acted to facilitate that transition as ethnic, interracial and class tensions were parlayed into the protectionism, extreme nationalism and xenophobia that marked the insular capitalism of the 1920s and 1930s. As one reviewer of our book has commented, these realities are a reminder to us that, quote, the historical geographic foundations of globalisation have at root been characterised as much by exclusion as by inclusion. Or as we put it, the economic possibilities of the British world, dizzying as they may have been, were also to a great extent racially circumscribed. Now, the notion of imperial globalisation that I've been elaborating is also developed in our book through the theme of consumption. If the phenomenon of globalisation is that of a world of things in motion, then the logic of the market has clearly been central to it. 
And yet, as we know, the global financial crisis of our own times has created opportunities for those who have long been sceptical of the idea that markets were the product of forces beyond the influence of mankind. In particular, I think, recent scholarship has been more open to the idea that group values and beliefs can influence levels of economic performance and that trade can often develop more readily amongst peoples that share a common identity, whether that identity be ethnic, religious or political in nature. And I think there's increasing recognition of how deeply embedded markets were and are in distinctive traditions and practices that can influence both how they're conceived and how they actually function. And in the case of the imperial and British world, I think though that, that quite a lot of work remains to be done to try and actually uncover what those traditions and practices actually were. Across an English-speaking world, it is clear that consumerism intensifies significantly after the mid-19th century. The rise of bourgeois society in Britain, the United States and the settler colonies, sees a language of needs increasingly dis displaced by what we might call a language of wants, as the middle classes try to demonstrate their worth by what they consume and also by how they actually consume it. And probably the most widely discussed sphere of material culture, I think, is that of fashion. The trend towards uniformity in dress, which has been observed amongst the Chinese and Japanese as well as the English, has been noted by several historians, propelled as it was by the growth of overseas trade and the development of advertising, and I think more generally by an aspiration towards modernity and the spread of the idea of respectability. So in the early 1830s, there is evidence to show that middle-class women in the colonies, for example, were already recreating um, changing metropolitan tastes in clothes. And such consuming habits I think, stemmed in no small part from colonial cultural sensitivities. It was the fear among migrants of sliding into mediocrity or being considered provincial or unfashionable or, or, back, uh, or backward, which was widespread. And Australia provides a particularly interesting case here, <coughs> partly because it boasts some of the best research into clothing habits and into fashion as a medium of representation and the communication of social values and beliefs. Much urban dress was modelled on British styles and it's either imported or made up from overseas patterns. And in their quest for respectability, the merchants and businessmen of Victoria and New South Wales adopt the British preference for dark coloured outfits consisting of frock coats, trousers and waistcoats, often offset with a tall top hat. Understandably, men in Queensland were somewhat reluctant to follow that sartorial trend, which was perhaps hardly suited to its tropical climate. Meanwhile, the quality garments worn by middle-class women were often imported ones, and those wishing to adopt a genteel lifestyle paid close attention to codes of social practice in Britain. For much of the 19th century, what is on offer to them locally is actually quite limited, and it's also expensive, and so there's a tendency for Australian department stores to combine the retailing of imported British goods with local garment production. Indigenous peoples also, of course, adopted British styles of clothing, but when they did so, they donned Western garments, tending to invest them with their own particular meanings. Take the case of Southern Africa. Here, male converts to Christianity were amongst the first indigenous people to adopt European clothing in the 1860s and 70s. As the Komarovs have argued, Clothing was a morally charged medium for missionaries. 
and the naked or semi-clad native body evoke degeneracy and disorder. So the campaign to clothe Africans, in other words, is inseparable from other aspects of the civilising mission. But there were clear limits to what whites thought acceptable, and Africans pushed right up against them. While missionaries saw clothing as part of their civilising offensive on African manners and beliefs, they became increasingly concerned by Africans' use of Western dress, especially when they felt that it was being worn immodestly or being worn to express opposition to settler rule. Probably the main item of imported clothing from Britain for indigenous Africans, however, was actually the woolen blanket. Worn in ritual and everyday contexts and recommended by their versatility, blankets could be secured at the shoulder or pinned round the waist or cradle babies or provide bedding. And the demand from the Basoto people, for example, was such that the Yorkshire firm of Wormold and Walker of Dewsbury, which is just down the road from my home in Leeds, began designing blankets for um, Basoto land, today's Basoto, well before the end of the 19th century. The famous African trading firm Fraser Limited, founded by two immigrants from Ipswich, made a good deal of money from importing blankets into southern Africa. Yet their products had to be designed to suit African tribal preferences and design preferences rather than reflecting British ones. The Victoria line depicting the British Queen and produced during the Jubilee year of 1897 was probably the best known. Sixty years later, one of Wormold and Walker's agents could still remark, quote, the Victoria is the hallmark of the well-dressed Basoto. Well, consumption in truth was a rather blunt tool of conquest. If the civilising mission in the settler colonies was partly predicated on an assumption that Western commodities, and especially clothing, could transform the habits of Africans, the reality proved different. Difficulties of access to such goods and the people who traded them, low purchasing power and the resilience of local um, costume, all of those things stood in the way of implanting new cultures of consumption amongst indigenous peoples. Amongst British migrants, by contrast, commodities and specific ways in which they were used did play a role in forging a wider British or pan-British culture. And significantly, I think, that cross-fertilisation in consumption didn't extend to nearly the same degree to the United States, where the move from revenue raising to protectionist tariffs, the rapid growth of domestic industries, and a far less homogenous consumer market acted as significant constraints. During the second half of the 19th century, merchants and manufacturers from Britain were, however, increasingly to seize upon the settler colonies to expand their markets. Not only did those colonies consume uh, comparatively high levels of British exports, the share of income they devoted to British goods deepened relative to other parts of the world over time. That isn't to suggest that British trade and export volumes were driven by identity and networks alone, of course. For most of the period under consideration, the growing volumes of British exports to the Dominions, I think, are to be explained not just by their fondness for British goods, but by the growth of Dominion uh, GDP and the mounting affluence of settler societies which, of course, other foreign exporters, just like the British, would have stood to um, benefit from. So our position is that a host of non-market advantages, cultural factors, help to explain the relatively high levels of British exports to the Dominions. They don't always explain the continued growth of those export volumes. That said, as Samuel Johnson observed back in 1783, the value of counting things is that it brings everything to a certainty, 
which before floated in the mind indefinitely. In our case, the value of aggregate trade data is that it permits the distinction to be drawn, I think more precisely, between the unusual and usual. We don't just look at export shares. As I've suggested, what we do is to combine trade and income uh, data to identify the extent to which import patterns in the colonies differed in terms of the proportion of their incomes that were devoted um, to British goods from uh, connections that had a looser um, relationship to Britain. And the main conclusion we draw is that British industry did possess significant initial advantages in selling to those markets because of cultural affinity, but it only held on to those advantages by remaining competitive in terms of price and product and distribution and marketing. So in other words, our findings in that way contribute, I think, further to what you might call the rehabilitation of the once maligned British manufacturing um, sector, especially because we emphasise that you know, um, uh, there was a great variety of products that Britain was able uh, to continue to successfully um, supply to distant markets. So um, moving to a conclusion then. Central to the whole process of 19th century and imperial globalisation was migration. By its very nature, migration is both personal and transformative. It changes the way in which individuals, and also I think the families they leave behind, imagine their social spaces, thereby making migration a defining aspect of their identity. In our case, by encouraging people to see themselves as part of a global chain of kith and kin, who shared common standards, forms of communication and expectations, the mass migration of people from the British Isles during the long 19th century turned national and also, I think, regional identities into transnational ones. This migration also promoted economic integration of a like hitherto not witnessed. There was, in short, a quickening of economic relationships within the British world at this time, a more precise and intensive drawing together of the needs and interests of Britain and its settler colonies. Almost by stealth, you might say, the workings of a multitude of transnational networks bypassed national boundaries and unwittingly took large and historically important steps towards the emergence of a truly global market. While Britain was often at the hub of those networks through which people, capital and goods moved, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa were rapidly evolving and maturing societies and economies in their own right. They were remarkably open to the world beyond their shores, and each contributed distinctively to the development of the transnational networks that I've been talking about. However, as well as understanding how a developing sense of Britishness aided economic and social integration in the half century before the First World War, we also need to be aware of the historical diversity of globalising forces. To quote John Darwin, the exceptionally complex ways in which past patterns of trade and conquest, migration and diaspora, have pulled and pushed distant regions together and shaped their cultures and politics. This is not perhaps the impression conveyed by much of the recent literature on globalisation, which portrays the whole process as almost unstoppable, something akin to a massive computer algorithm slowly working itself out to some beautiful conclusion or cataclysmic event, depending on whether you're a globalisation optimist or pessimist, whether you feel excited or appalled by it. But a historical perspective on globalisation, 
especially one derived from the study of European empires in centuries past, cautions against conceiving of it as some all-encompassing planetary event, dramatically steamrolling diversity into oblivion, or indeed against casting the whole process in providential or Darwinian terms. Rather, what this paper has sought to show is that this so-called first wave of modern globalisation, pursued by the British in the long 19th century, was nowhere near as simple as that. At best, it was partial and limited, at worst, violent and flawed. Closer connections alone did not eliminate heterogeneity. Rather, the integration of labour, capital and commodity markets happened in certain places and certain ways, marked by regional as well as ethnic biases and proclivities. More than that, delving back into globalisation's past reveals how several of the characteristics of the global economy and society talked about so frequently in our own times, semi-globalisation, regionalised globalisation, notions of network power, the network society, and indeed the centrality of international migration to the globalisation process, stem in part from the historical experience of the British imperial and wider Anglophone worlds. The reasons why the above characteristics might be so significant may be precisely because they're so deeply rooted. One might go a step further. Two of the main contemporary challenges presented by globalisation arising out of those characteristics arguably have their origins in the half century prior to 1914. The first challenge arises from the sheer scale of global mobility, the explosion of diasporic cultures and the resulting question of how to extend economic relations across cultural and ethnic boundaries. In short, how successfully can economic interdependence coexist with cultural diversity? The second challenge arises from the contingent nature of globalisation, its varying openness over time and its almost self-destructive capacity to produce the very circumstances economic nationalism, trade protection, tight immigration controls in which it's likely to break down. This set of circumstances has been called the globalisation backlash. Is such a backlash and the deglobalisation that ensues sooner or later inevitable or can it in fact be avoided? In the media as well as academia there's been much speculation of late as to whether an awareness of previous experiences and episodes of globalisation can help to inform the way in which governments manage its consequences today. Lessons of history, of course, rarely present themselves in neatly packaged forms. Nonetheless, I think that studying the British world as a discrete historical phenomenon that profoundly altered the global landscape in the long 19th century does highlight how, in the past, different parts of the world joined the global community in their own way and in their own time. It also suggests that maintaining a degree of openness and interconnectedness, which is widely felt to be the sine qua non of globalisation, requires us to take account of its cultural as well as its economic dynamic. Many of the transnational networks upon which the first wave of modern globalisation was built turned in on themselves at the moment of diplomatic, economic and military crisis. In the wake of our own global financial crisis, counteracting this tendency of networks to turn inwards when confronted by major economic challenges has been recognised as an important consideration for policy making. Globalisation works best and proves most resilient 
when its orientation is outward and inclusive and its benefits most widely shared. At a time when we're grappling with our own global migration crisis and migrants are as likely to be regarded as a threat, as an opportunity for receiving societies, this is something that the Pax Americana would do well to keep in mind.